Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. History will not be kind to Donald Trump. I think we all know that. Not because it will be written by never Trumpers, but because whenever we have departed from the values of our nation, we have come to regret it. And that regret is written all over the pages of our history. I do think overall there is a corruption issue in Ukraine. We have pointed this out for years. Bribery is an abuse of power. The president has obstructed this process. He tried to cheat, he got caught, and he worked hard to cover it up. And I think history will haunt any of my colleagues, particularly on the Republican side, who vote to acquit. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I want to give one cheer. I know I'm alone with this, but one cheer for the Iowa caucus or half a cheer. Like, huzzah! That's because there really is excitement in the spectacle of people showing up in physical space to mill around and talk and try to get delegates for their candidates. This is why Alexis de Tocqueville loved the spectacle of caucuses in America, because they just were, I think he called it civic voluntarism, just people showing up to talk about politics. It's so giddy-making, the Iowa caucus for reporters. This is my theory about why everyone has turned on it. Reporters, you know, they get to go to these high school dances, like, in these gyms. Everyone's, like, really heightened. I don't know if you saw Katie Tour on MSNBC last night, but she was running around. And last night, when the caucus got so bogged down with the app and the yellow paper and the calculators they were using and all these things— failed to speak to the right precinct captains, who in turn were high on coffee and a salad of, like, hanging chads, <sighs> when the whole thing became an absolute bust. I felt like the reporters wanted to act kind of like, oh, Iowa's so uncool and we weren't psyched about it and never cared. Like a high school dance. But for one brief moment last night in the interviews in the Cedar Rapids and Iowa City and Des Moines and Clive Iowa gyms, you could remember... Americans who are, yes, white and in the middle of the country, but they aren't remotely red hats. And it was like they were talking and saying normal, smart things about normal, smart people like Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar, people who don't have affairs with porn stars and hire weirdos to say that they're in perfect health. I just kept thinking about this time that I went to Russia in uh, something like 1995 or 96, and the mafia there was already threatening to hijack the path to market capitalism and liberal democracy that Americans had hoped would be the future of post-Soviet Russia. And these women I met with, I was reporting on the election of Boris Yeltsin, they kept saying they didn't care about peace or nukes or capitalism or really any of the values Americans were trying to force on them. Instead, they just wanted things to be normal. They kept saying the word normal in English. And they were young women who had lived all their lives in the Soviet Union, grown up in it, been young pioneers. And what was their reference point for normal? After more talking, I heard them say they wanted less surveillance, less suspicion, 
fewer bribes, less corruption, more choices about education and careers. But they also wanted choices about clothes and who to marry and whether or when to have kids. They were really young and they had married as teenagers in the Soviet Union and they just wanted to be able to get divorced and travel. That's what I remember. It wasn't like they were in awe that I had Levi's or all the things that I had been led to expect that Soviets admired about America. And they certainly didn't like think my life was some great paradigm of how some shining city on a hill for a person. But they did look at the traveling. They asked me a lot about dating, working, voting in more or less fair elections. They asked if I could be religious if I wanted to, working for money, shopping, not having children till I was ready to go into graduate school. All those things they said, it just sounded so normal and still out of reach to them. And I suspect the idea of normal in Putin's Russia is still also very far away from most Russians. Today, we're talking about the missing normalcy in the United States. And we're talking about when abnormality, the fact of abnormality, but also the sensation and appearance of abnormality has not just come to our shores, it now inhabits the White House. And for the past three years, Donald Trump and the White House have set the tone for abnormality everywhere. When you say America is divided or partisan or rancorous or a shit show, maybe you're just saying it doesn't feel normal. My guest today is Michael Rothfeld, and he knows from abnormal. He's a New York Times reporter and the author with Joe Palazzolo of The Fixers, the bottom feeders, crooked lawyers, gossip mongers, and porn stars who created the 45th president. Michael has somehow kept his cool as he and Palazzolo traveled through the disturbing demimonde of Roy Cohn, Michael Cohen, David Pecker, Stormy Daniels, Keith Davidson, and Michael Avenatti. Oh, and many, many more. If anyone has given our times in the Trump presidency its unwholesome, ignominious vibe, it's that carny scene around Trump, the ones who made him. And no one knows this scene better than Michael Rothfeld. I'll be back with Michael Rothfeld in just a minute, but first, the tweets. The Democratic Party in Iowa really messed up, but the Republican Party did not. I had the largest re-election vote in the history of that great state by far, beating President Obama's previous record by a lot. Also, 97% plus of the vote. Thank you, Iowa. When will the Democrats start blaming Russia, Russia, Russia instead of their own incompetence for the voting disaster that just happened in the great state of Iowa? The Democratic caucus is an unmitigated disaster. Nothing works just like they ran the country. Remember the $5 billion Obamacare website? That should have cost 2% of that. The only person that can claim a very big victory in Iowa last night is Trump. Where's the whistleblower? Where's the second whistleblower? Where's the informer? Why did corrupt politician Schiff make up my conversation with the Ukrainian president? Why didn't the House do its job? And so much more. Congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs on a great game and a fantastic comeback. Under immense pressure, we are proud of you and the great state of 
Missouri. You are true champions. Michael Rothfeld, you are the author of this terrific new book, The Fixers. Welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. Okay, before we start, can you tell me what is a fixer? A fixer is somebody who takes care of your problems, your dirty secrets, and just tries to make them go away. And they also insulate you from the problem. So they, they protect you by actually just dealing with it themselves. Well, thank you for that succinct description of what a fixer is. All right. I got to ask you about the archetype of a fixer, Roy Cohn. Tell us about Roy Cohn. So Roy Cohn, going back to him mm-hmm. as the, the initial prototype, he got in trouble with the Bar Association and was having his was basically having a hearing to be uh, lose his law license, which mm-hmm. he ultimately did. And all these famous people uh, like Barbara Walters that Roy Cohn was friends with testified mm-hmm. on his behalf, including Donald Trump. And he went and testified in this um, hearing and he says, you know, he's loyal and that's the most you can ask from a lawyer. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. let's be real here. Mm -hmm. Loyalty is not the key ingredient in a lawyer. You probably want sound legal advice. I mean, you you want good strategy. You might want ethics, uh, theoretically, Mm -hmm. but in Donald Trump's mind, it's loyalty. And so he's just looking for somebody who is going to do whatever he wants in the White House where he's saying, asking all these people. I mean, we've so many examples in the Mueller report of people who Trump just asked to do all these things who were like, no, or they said yes, like Barr, evidently. Well, Barr was, uh, yeah, the one he found ultimately because he Mm -hmm. couldn't, he really couldn't get Sessions to do what he wanted. Right. So he got Barr and I mean, Barr using the explanation that he was trying to protect the presidency was actually protecting Trump in Mm -hmm. reality. With McGahn, he says they're talking about, you know, he brings up Trump after alternately like making, mocking Roy Cohn and praising him, yeah. you know, brings him up to McGann and says, well, Roy Cohn, you know, McGann says, oh, has notes. And Trump says, why did you take notes? And mm-hmm. Trump says, you know, I never had a lawyer that took notes. That's Roy right. Cohn never took notes. And McGann says, well, I'm a real lawyer, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no lawyer that takes notes. I mean, that isn't really, after being in business for decades, you would think that you might know that. On the other hand, Michael Cohen didn't take notes, but he made some recordings, surreptitious recordings, and so did another kind of quasi-fixer, Omarosa. So there's more cloak and dagger here than meets the eye. Like Rod Rosenstein, who ultimately seemed like he genuflected before the president, at times, I mean, offered to wear a wire, tried to get him removed from, or at least reportedly, but with the 25th Amendment, proposed it or thought about it. He seemed to be walking a line. Well, walking a line, but swerving. Right. You know, like a, yes. like a love-hate kind of thing. I mean, there's some that really seem to walk a line, like a Mattis, maybe, or just like, I will stay myself, I will stay myself, and when I retire, I will not say a word. And then there are some people who just really seem crazy. Like, it's not surprising to me to hear uh, Cohen um, being suicidal, Manafort also suicidal. I don't know if he counts as a fixer, but sort of. And Rosenstein. And just kind of not knowing which way is up. 
it's hard to know what the motives are, especially like with someone like Rosenstein, where, you know, he makes some decisions where it seems like he's capitulating to Trump and doing yeah. what he wants. But then these other ones that you're talking about. So what are his motives? Is he trying to keep his job? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, this position of power where he's basically running the Justice Department, especially because Sessions is recused. Mm-hmm. Or is he trying to do the right thing by keeping himself in Trump's good graces so he can remain in the position and then maybe kind of stealthily steer in the right direction Mm -hmm. that he thinks. uh, And I mean, I would like to believe it's the latter. Uh, we, we know, and I think we have this scene in the book where when Michael Cohen's office was going to be raided, the yeah. prosecutors in New York let uh, Maine Justice Rosenstein know. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rob Kazami, who is running the investigation of Cohen in New York, calls mm-hmm. Rosenstein and says, you know, we're going to raid Cohen's office and we have these search warrants and his, and his hotel room and his home. And Rosenstein just kind of signs off on it and then he tells Sessions Monday's going to be a bad day because he knows like mm-hmm. this is going to happen and then Trump is going to blow up and tweet about it and people raided and yeah. Rudy Giuliani goes on Fox and says stormtroopers raiding the office but you know Rosenstein didn't stop that from happening and, mm-hmm. and they let it go forward It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash Life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land You know what they say Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. We're thinking today about the Republican senators who I was hearing a, a former Republican saying that they've made the can't sleep at night vote or they're about to to acquit. And this seems to be, you know, I still don't know whether the Rosensteins of the world or the the people that split differences, um, Mattis or even, you know, Tillerson, who, you know, his one moment of rising up against the president was to defend you know, what, the U.S. military. I mean, the bar has gotten so low that saying things, I remember thinking at the Women's March the first year that, you know, people would object to Trump on policy and their placards would say, you know, something relatively complicated or interesting about about his policy and his, and his, and re- sounds about racist policy. In fact, they were like, please respect me, Mr. President. I don't want to get in your way, but don't kill me, you know? And that sort of seems like this like low bar that we have for the president, which is like when he's excoriating the U.S. military or saying I'm smarter than the generals, for someone who had led one of the biggest companies in the world, Exxon, to stand up to him and say, well, really, I think our men and women in uniform are kind of something to be proud of. And that is considered a, an act of incredible courage. I mean, (laughs) you know, we've gotten like, you know, when you say it's going to be a bad Monday, what's so scary about this guy? Like he'll tweet about you and God forbid, you know, and call you short or fat or whatever he called Bloomberg. It's a good question. I mean, we're it. Everything feels very precarious now. The stakes seem so much higher than they have at other times just because, I mean, we're so polarized in the country and and power becomes so important because Mm -hmm. there's no, I mean, compromise isn't really something that you see in Congress Mm -hmm. much now. And so, yeah, why are people so scared to go out on a limb? Yeah. I mean, because if you do, you get punished. I mean, yeah, a tweet doesn't seem that scary to me, but to somebody else, I, I guess I could see how it could be. 
I've just like puzzled over so many times and we were sort of hinting at, a you know, possible, not quite disagreement, but, you know, maybe different ways of reading the commitments of some of the fixers. And maybe you can give me some examples of your view that they're acting, at least in their short term self-interest. I think instead that they are subject to, there's some psychological torque on them that is the reason that it can happen to so many people, that he can deputize so many other formerly self-respecting people to, as Michael Cohen said, life of Mr. Trump, suggests that there's something at play that we might be able to find in ourselves, right? So like, yeah, okay, greed, okay, everyone likes cigars and nice suits, or I'm told, and lawn ornaments and the things that Manafort had. But the like that kind of sub- subjugation or or kind of masochism, and I promise that's not a not a sexual explanation I have for their thing. But I'm going to share my view with you and okay. try it out on you. But I also want to hear yours about the self interest. Sure. What makes Omarosa, who he's beat up so many times, or Mitch McConnell, who he's beat up so many times, stand for square with the president, or Bill Barr, who you know might think about his legacy, or even Giuliani? who might think about his legacy. I mean, Scaramucci, we've had ex-cultists on the show to talk about this. Why? Why do you think they jump in with him? Well, I mean, we have to acknowledge that he's very good at promoting himself and at um, spreading his myth. He's been doing that for decades. And uh, so if, and it appeals, even though like it, for some people like Trump Tower and the gold here, you know, on the coasts might seem cheesy. And yeah. but then for all these other people across the country, you know, we could call mainstream America or, you know, the National Enquirer is a huge part of my book. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. so, you know, that's sold on the supermarket checkout stands mm-hmm. and Trump, they really helped make Trump's uh, reputation even before it was bought by his friend David Pecker and yeah. his investors um, in 99. Um, Trump, his myth was kind of established in those pages, which is read by people mm-hmm. across America. And so uh, when these other people see the opportunity to get close to Trump in a way they're being, um, he's going to, they admire that glitteriness, that mm-hmm. gold that Trump is really good at propagating. And I think they feel like, like Michael Cohen, he was working before he met Trump Well, at various places, but at one point over a taxi garage in Queens, and Mm -hmm. it's not the most glamorous place. And then you walk into Trump Tower or in one of these Trump Mm -hmm. shining buildings and you see, oh, Trump. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, this this star, this reality star Mm -hmm. is willing to talk to me. So Mm -hmm. that's like very attractive. It kind of in some people's minds, it lifts you up out of your situation. Um, Roy Cohn also was drawn to Trump's. He has this aura and some people really like that. So, I mean, I think from your psychic perspective, it doesn't appeal to everybody. But there are some people who see who see that as something that they aspire to. Just that fact that he's willing to bring them into his circle. And and for him, as we discussed before, it's really expedience. It's like, okay, if I get these people who don't have much going on, well, Roy Cohn had a lot going on, so that Mm -hmm. to be fair to him, but... Oh, Bill Barr? Yes, that's true. I mean, Barr got to be the Attorney General of the United States. Yes. And he, you know, so it's like at a late stage in his career, he had a successful corporate career. Yeah. But, you know, it's a little different, you know, heading the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he had the opportunity to do that. And so that's a, a career motive. But I think also the power, you know, just the ability to yeah. get the power that Trump can bestow. 
I think that seems all true, and it is worth talking about the taste factor that in New York, there's some interest in the kitsch. I mean, I was just reading about Jeffrey Epstein's palace, a palatial place in Manhattan, the biggest place in Manhattan. You know, you and I wouldn't turn down an invitation to a dinner there. We were told a few friends of ours were going to be there and we'd be awed by, well, at least I would, by an apartment house that big in Manhattan. And kind of what a laugh to go to Mar-a-Lago. This place is so kooky. Right. And once you're there, you know, maybe and for a penny and for a pound, that many people are interested in living in Trump Towers and like, like the brassy exterior of those places that supposedly mm-hmm. confer some glamour on them. I think another part of it is, so I once did a, 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 I've done very few celebrity profiles, but one of them was with a very powerful woman in Hollywood. And um, I spent a lot of time with her. And I was realizing that I was becoming more and more inhibited as she talked. And even powerful people I asked about her asked back to me, what does she think of me, right? They couldn't say anything about her, basically wondering if if they had her good opinion. So I realized by the end that she, uh, and but also she burst into tears a couple times while we were talking, remembering 9-11 and other things. And I had no reason to think that was, you know, a sham. But by the end, I thought, I'm simultaneously worried that I'm going to hurt her and that she's going to hurt me. And the combination is terrible. If you're talking to someone who could hurt you back and you can hurt them, you have like a nice kind of Adam Smith standoff with mm-hmm. each other. And if you're talking to someone who's manifestly weaker than you, you can take care of them and you can fall into that role. But Trump is this is this very difficult thing for the psyche, I think, which is that he's very he's very needy. Okay, two other personal stories. One is a guy I know who really, really needs to believe he's the smartest person who pretty much ever lived, like Keith Rainier of Nexium kind mm-hmm. of type. You know, he has to have had perfect scores and been first in his class. And even though there's some evidence that none of that's true, you can almost feel from someone the need to confirm their intelligence is so deep that you almost feel like you're around a baby. Like, what kind of person would deny you know, if this guy says, tells a story about how he put someone in his place that he considers an idiot, who would say back to him, you don't seem very smart yourself. It's just impossible. It's not human nature. And Michael Cohen says the same thing. You know, Trump says, isn't this the best tie you've ever seen in your life? And what kind of asshole says back, you know what? No, I don't like that tie. Once you've said, yes, it's the best tie I've ever seen, you're You've taken a step towards seeing yourself as his caretaker. And then you kind of almost feel like you're doing something good. Poor guy. He has affairs with all these people. I'm going to, and he he needs me so much. I'm like a mother to him. I'm a father to him. I have to take care of him. I see him at his most vulnerable. You don't understand. This is my job. And like oxytocin or whatever it is kicks in the way you would feel around a helpless baby. The last example, not personal example, Ted Bundy. I'm watching this documentary about him, feminist documentary, by the women uh, around him, the women who he hurt, who he facilitated, obviously not the women he killed, but some of the women he attacked. And what he preyed on was their good nature. What he preyed on was their willingness to help him. He had a whole sham about his car had broken down, he had a broken arm. Can you help me? was the first thing he said. Right. And to lure them into his car right. to kill them. And I feel like... You, on the one hand, you're like, oh, he's got all this glitter and glam. Uh, Eric Schneiderman, too. I'm reading his book, the former, uh, reading the book of one of his victims, um, former AG of New York. Also, I'm broken. Please help me. I'm an right. al- I'm drinking too much, you right. know. Um, and I think it's almost, it's this kind of caretaker thing gone crazy in some of these guys. Like, 
Uh, you know, I'm Mike Pence. I got to smooth this over for the Christian people because Trump is so damaged or right. he's so early in his faith journey or whatever. Well, there's something so powerful about feeling needed by yes, someone. Yes, yes. When you're, in a way, it gives you it gives you power to feel like you are you are crucial, you're essential, you're you're indispensable, yeah. even if you're not. And so, for people who don't have a lot going on in their lives yeah. um, necessarily, or even people, some people who do, that feeling of being wanted, of being um, needed um, can really be an incredible motivator. It reminded me what, when you were talking about when I interviewed Trump in 2016 at his office one time for an hour before he was president, obviously. It was, I think, May. And we were doing a story about his his connections to the mob in his career and, <laughs> and unions. And Roy Cohn was in that story, too. And, and so I was um, actually kind of finagled my way into his office because I kept trying to set up an interview and they kept mm-hmm. canceling it. And then one day and they said it and they never, I never confirmed. So I just showed up and, and, um, they were like, Oh, you're not on the calendar. But, um, and I was like, well, I have an appointment. So they said you could come up for 10 minutes. And mm-hmm. so I went up and he was there and all the kids were there and we're sitting in his office. Wow. And we end up talking for an hour. And every time I'm bringing up these, so I'm telling him all these various stories that I have and, I mention a name and he say, well, what did that person say? I mean, I won't say I talked to the person, but he'll just like, he'll kind of infer that. And he yeah. says, well, what did he say about me? What, yeah. Did he, did he say I was a good guy? Did he, I mean, every yeah. single time you mention somebody, he wants to know what that person said about him. And right. I would be like, well, that person's dead. <laughs> you know, so oh. <laughs> They didn't say anything about you. Did you find right. any temptation in you to say, oh, he thinks you're great. Like a human impulse to I mean, be like, his ego is so, like, it's an existential threat to him to hear anything bad about himself. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, pragmatic. You know, you're trying to keep the interview on, you know, you want to kind of get um, the answers Mm -hmm. that you need. So, but the way I would generally handle that would be to just say something, you know, I could say that would, well, he said you were X, you know, like something, you know, moderately positive to keep him in the flow of the interview and not like blow it up or anything. Yeah. Um, although then then you and then you kind of say the negative things in a way that is more palatable, but you're still yeah. kind of getting it across. I mean, it also reminds me of like years ago, I traveled to Cuba and everywhere you'd meet there, Fidel was alive at the time and mm-hmm. they would say, oh, what do you think of Fidel? And, and you know, they have their own coded messages. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you, mm-hmm. you know, you say, what do you think of Fidel? And they say, oh, he was good for healthcare and education. Mm, you know? Right. <laughs> you don't say, he's a brutal dictator. Right, you right. Know? A little mentor in Canada, there's a script that you're supposed to answer. Exactly. So, I mean, that's kind of how I handled it. Obviously, I'm not beholden to to Donald Trump in any way, so I didn't need to say, oh, that's the best time. Well, he is your president. (laughs) (laughs) One of the templates that I wish we would stay away from going into 2020 is just even the idea that Trump is charismatic, that this is a freestanding quality of his. Um, This is sometimes, I think, used by ex-Trumpites to explain why they were under his spell. And you see um, some of the Republicans are coming out once again saying, he's perfect, he's amazing, he's a brilliant campaigner. Um, I mean, I think the more we feed the story, the worse this gets, because no one is just charismatic in a vacuum without people idolizing them. And if what you mean is you like and admire him, then people should say that. The thing that's coming to mind is from this Ted Bundy thing. I've got, I've got to say it's very compelling. But one of the reporters, when they finally caught Ted Bundy, did a jailhouse interview with him. And I was thinking of you talking to Donald Trump. And she said she looks back at the tape and she's just so mad that she laughs at a couple of his jokes, that she like sinks 
limbically with him and is, like, happy to be there. I mean, you look like a person that, like, is careful to keep your autonomy. And she's a TV journalist, so she's trying to establish rapport. Right. And and she knows he's murdered all these people, but he makes right. a few jokes. Right. And the judge who sentenced him to death does the same thing on the way out the door. You know, kind of, I think you're a great guy and a smart guy. I wish you well, he says, sending him to the gas chamber uh, or whatever. Well, but he sends him to the gas chamber. I mean, that's the ultimate result. And I mean, it's tough because when you're interviewing someone, you need to have a certain empathy for them in a way, like mm-hmm. in order to do an effective interview, even if you're asking hard questions or you're going to write or say hard things. Right. I mean, ultimately, because at least from my point of view, like, you know, being um, doing the kind of reporting that I do and have done, like, you know, you interview many people who are negative subjects of your work over Mm -hmm. over the years and, 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 you know, to get the most out of them, Mm -hmm. you know, for your, for your work, then you, you want to engage with them. And so if you, I'm not saying, but you don't like agree with horrible things that somebody says. Says, but like they need to be able to look you in the eyes and see that you're actually listening to them yeah. because and you know you want to gather what's in their head mm-hmm. um, for mm-hmm. you so that's I don't fault her even though looking back on it I could see how she would be horrified at laughing at Ted Bundy's yeah, joke yeah 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 but uh, you know it is the most effective way to be able to convince somebody to open up to you Olivia Nuzzi said this too that she talks to some of the worst of the scoundrels including Giuliani often and that I mean she just wants to keep them talking. Right. You know, you don't insert yourself into it. Give me some more examples from the book mm-hmm. of people who started lying, lying for Mr. Trump and, and may have may find themselves in the dire psychic imperiled state that Michael Cohen is in. David Pecker, I mentioned before, yes. is a major character in our book. And we actually have a lot. You know, we kind of tell the story of him from his childhood where he's this son of a bricklayer growing up in the Bronx mm. um, and ends up. Uh, he's like this fat kid and his um, he loses his weight and, and uh, becomes an accountant, takes care of his family and and rises up in the magazine world and becomes the head of Hachette, which is a French-owned mm-hmm. magazine company and before coming to the National Enquirer. But uh, at the same time as he's um, rising up in this kind of glamorous magazine industry, he's also, I mean, he's an interesting character because um, at he's he also falls into this category of somebody who likes to be around powerful people Mm -hmm. and seeks out their approval and Mm -hmm. seeks out relationships with them like this kind of glitz and glam like he really wanted a table at Rayo's this Italian place incredibly exclusive exactly you can't get a table there right you just get rejected rejected so he he gets a table like one night a month or something Mm -hmm. and and, um, he establishes relationships with uh, Ron Perlman the investor and Mm -hmm. he kills a story for him about Planet Hollywood Mm -hmm. and which he was an investor in in Premier Magazine, which Perelman was also investor in. He ultimately be- establishes this relationship with Trump in the 90s when he's hanging out at Mar-a-Lago and hitching rides on Trump's jet. And he, mm-hmm. he does this custom magazine for Trump called Trump Style, which mm-hmm. one of his executives says, Trump Style, that's like the oxymoron of the century. Yeah. And, <laughs> right. uh, and Peck, so we're not going to be able to sell ads for it. And one yeah. of his executives says, you know, says that to him and and Pecker's just like, just sell the shit. Um, <laughs> and they can't. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, he he protects Trump in the pages of the National Enquirer, which uh, over the years and, and then helps him uh, propagate these presidential aspirations in 99, 2011. And mm-hmm. then again in 2015, when he ultimately um, 
pays off Karen McDougal, this Playboy model, and mm-hmm. um, $150,000 buying mm-hmm. up her story of an affair with Trump. This is the first time we heard catch and kill, right? Right, exactly. Although he did it for Arnold Schwarzenegger, too, uh, mm. years earlier because uh, he bought up these muscle magazines, and then which um, Schwarzenegger had been a key uh, mm-hmm. model on the cover, and it was in the pages of these muscle magazines and was like a kind of a spokesman for them. So when Arnold ran for the recall, Pecker paid off... Uh, this woman who had had an affair with him Mm. to not talk about it in 2003 and Mm -hmm. became the governor of California and then even did it later in 2013. He buys up a photocopy of Arnold Naked, um, an old one, photocopy of a nude picture for $20,000 and sends it to Arnold um, when Arnold was like acting as an editor. So there's some expedience to it and then Mm. there's this desire to be around powerful people and in their glow. But ultimately, he also goes down because, uh, Mm -hmm. because of the Karen McDougal payment and uh, also he was someone involved in the Stormy Daniels payment. Um, the company takes a non-prosecution agreement and uh, admits that it committed a crime. And the tabloids are kind of in dire straits financially. Mm-hmm. And so Pecker, through this association with Trump, ends up kind of humiliated. And um, then they kind of make a deal to, to sell these tabloids. I think I said this on the show before, but I sometimes wonder with Harvey Weinstein currently on trial, when I think of the pie chart of his day. One sliver of it is jerking off in a potted plant in front of a major celebrity. And then the rest of it seems to be calling the Mossad. So one thing I sort of wonder about these people is it's almost like they have affairs in order to start strategizing about catching and killing their story and sending a, <laughs> you know, and sending <laughs> photocopies of naked right. Arnold Schwarzenegger to them. Right. Like the major operation, the major mental work is this stuff. And to be fair or to be confessional, it, it does seem kind of fun. Like if you're David Pecker dreaming up this catch and kill thing to protect these, it, you know, it, he's an accountant. It uses part of his creative strategic mind. Right. And sometimes when you hear about the the nutty things that, that Michael Cohen did or that the people working for Black Cube did in, in uh, try, you know, kind of persecuting, it's kind of comical, you know, trying to trying and Felix Sater is also kind of comic figure. I'm sure you've, you know, heard some of Ronan Farrow's story about the one of the Black Cube guys, you know, mm-hmm. real a real fixer for Harvey Weinstein, right. who's trying to demonize some of the journalists and demonize some of the people, including your colleague Jody Cantor, around the story, mm-hmm. who flips, right. like Lev Parnas, and really says, you know, he, he, I think he said he's like waiting in his car one time to kind of watch Ronan coming out of the uh, of his apartment, and he says, you know, I ca- didn't come to America, I came to, you know, the free press is important to me. I always kind of liked the New York Times and these magazines, and I thought that the free press that had been stifled in the Soviet Union was one of the things I was going to get here. And he flips. And he, he reminds me very much of Lev Parnas in that way, because when he tells the stories, they sound both comical. They sound like all kinds of Sovietology kind of tricks are coming are coming into play. And they also, when they're done, they're done. Like, you don't really hear that guy saying, well, Harvey Weinstein, I'm so in his spell, or the guy that talked to Ronan Farrow, or, and you don't hear Lev Parnas right. saying, Donald Trump, what a superstar. Right. So sometimes it's the operators that flip, right. where you finally, like, hear in clean terms, this is what I did. And they do seem to get their heads clear. I mean, do you think so? Do you think it's possible for some of these fixers to come out of it in good faith? Not because they're facing prison time like Michael Cohen, but 
because they've run up against their own consciences. I think it's possible. I don't know exactly the circumstances of the, the Ronan Farrow yeah. guy you mentioned. Um, and Lev Parnas, he really got insulted because when Trump said he was in prison and he hears Trump saying, I don't know who that guy is. And, yeah. and in his mind, he was like, fuck you. Yeah. you know? Felix Sater also very mad about that when he said, I wouldn't recognize him if right. he walked in the room. Yeah. Although has been, I think, less out there about, um, yeah, hasn't really criticize Trump publicly the way that Parnas has. Yes. Um, you know, and Parnas has his motivation too. I mean, very similar, a lot of uh, similarities to Michael Cohen in the sense of trying to cooperate with Congress mm -hmm. uh, in order to potentially influence his criminal case. But, you know, you also can't discount the truly cathartic nature of coming out and, and saying, okay, my loyalty is broken because they weren't loyal to me. And so mm -hmm. now I'm going to tell the truth. I mean, many whistleblowers, if you could call them that, have ulterior motives. Um, you know, you can do, you can tell the truth or reveal things mm -hmm. that people don't know while at the same time having a personal motive of either collecting a whistleblower's bounty or mm -hmm. influencing your criminal case mm -hmm. or unburdening yourself of stuff that you did that yeah. you think you, you know, in your heart you knew you shouldn't have done at the time. Yeah. Setting yourself up ideally for a career in the straight world. Maybe getting a book deal. Maybe getting a book deal. Mm -hmm. So wait, do you see people like John Bolton? I don't know if that was an allusion to him, but because lots of the people have had book deals. But do you see some of the really straight world people like Bolton or do any of them seem to be in your fixer role? You mean, is Bolton a fixer? Is that what you're asking me? Mm, I mean, he's certainly like, he's got the mi weird mixed loyalty right. of Rod Rosenstein. I don't know. I mean, from what we've seen of him, he, you know, he, I, I mean, it certainly seems like his his willingness to testify coincided with his book coming out. I mean, yeah. you know, it's hard to get into his head, especially yeah. not knowing him. But but in terms of what he did at the time, he did his public his statements, his private statements that we know of at the mm -hmm. time were were not in favor of uh, pursuing this Ukraine uh, agenda that Giuliani was running. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, did Bolton fix other things for Trump? Uh, or I mean, he clearly wanted to be in the role that he mm -hmm. was in and and uh but uh, you know there are again these people who may cooperate at the same time they're trying to uh subversively do what they think is the mm -hmm. proper thing to do and i mean bolton might be more in that category because so many of these figures both the people who flipped and who broke out are of russian descent uh, and also from the outer boroughs you know i'm talking about michael cohen felix Sater. um Parnas, well, this Ukrainian guy that worked for Black Cube, Harvey Weinstein himself, they seem to bring this kind of contempt for, or at least either somewhere between playful skepticism and absolute contempt for American liberal democracy quotes, American market capitalism, as if these things are all on the up and up. And it's like they love to find either in a fun, ironic way, you know, like you've probably talked to Felix Sater. I mean, he's just like always joking about, you know, oh, come on, we all do these things. And, you know, it's a crazy world. And trying to flip the idea that our system with its banks, with its goody-goody politicians, like who seem like they are trying to be public servants, are all finally in the at the end. We just start care about sex, power, and money like everyone else. And this is said to be, a Putin through line about in his descriptions of the West is to get people to own everyone, 
you know, Prince Andrew or, you know, Bill Browder, anyone who looks like he is, you know, part of some clean hands world to reveal himself as blackmailable or bribable. And sometimes to the extent that we retell the story that, you know, everybody is a carny out for themselves or everybody is a bottom feeder, when it comes right down to it, everybody has their price, you know, is retells again and again, reinscribes the story that this is the the true America is like Moscow in the 70s or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if I like that. I think I'm too much Jimmy Stewart. I just think anytime a Gulf Stream is in the mix, you've got a bad person. It's an interesting theory. As with many things, there's there's truth to it in the sense of there is a whole layer of American capitalism that is built on the desire to to have, you know, and to rise and to which isn't necessarily a bad thing um, and, and, and transactional things. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, most of us at the end of the day just are scared of ending up in the street and like really yeah. would like to be millionaires at some level. But ultimately, I'm an optimist and, you mm-hmm. know, I don't I don't think that's true. Um, you know, having interviewed many people, mm-hmm. you know, over 25 years of reporting, yeah. you know, I, I think... I think most people, I mean, the people, maybe the people who are in power because they're in power are, do fall, fall into that category. But I mean, I just think that most people across the country just want to be able to pay their bills. It is so weird to have these people having surfaced, be front and center on the American stage. Tell me about one of the fixers who you felt a special connection to or interest in, um, and one that you found was like absolutely beneath contempt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't like to talk about any of my children like that, but... um... Oh my gosh, your children. No, I in the sense of being in my book. So I, I'll tell you, like, we have this one chapter called Mommy Triple X in our book, which features two people who, you know, they're in a way the secondary characters. They're not necessarily fixers, but they are part of this world that Donald Trump comes from. One is Keith Davidson. He's the yes. He was the lawyer both for Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. And um, he uh, grew up in the suburbs of working class suburbs of Boston and made his way out to California and got a law degree and was representing professional boxers for a while and then got into this work of basically trafficking in dirt on celebrities because people would come to him with a sex tape or whatever. Uh, He was involved in the Hulk Hogan sex tape and he basically um, is somebody who we say like he says like most lawyers deal in the black and white. I deal in the gray. Mm-hmm. He calls himself like one of the country's foremost experts on extortion law because when you mm-hmm. have a sex tape and you approach a celebrity, you know, you can either give it to the media mm-hmm. or you can sell it back to the celebrity for right. money, right? And obviously that's the more profitable thing to do. But mm-hmm. you can't say to the celebrity, hey, I have this sex tape. If you don't pay me off, I'm, I'm putting it out to the world. But you All have right. to say, you approach them and say, hey, I have this material and... I could help you out, you know, would you like to buy it? And so Keith, he was definitely uh, one of the most interesting people I found. And the other one was Gina Rodriguez, who was... I don't even remember her name. She was the manager for Stormy Daniels. Um, She actually got... uh, So she is quite interesting. She um, grew up in the Valley, 
in California, and she basically tried to pursue, she was in Baywatch, like some bit parts, and tried mm-hmm. to pursue an acting career, and then operated some beauty salons, and eventually got into porn, mm-hmm. and she has kids, and so she was acting under the poor, her father was like a member of the Mexican mafia, and went to jail, and killed people, and um, she was estranged from him, and she, she gets into porn under the name Demi Delia, which I believe is her father's uh, last name, mm-hmm. and she does porn for a few years, but she's like older, so she's like in the mommy like genre of porn. Sure. And um, and then she films this webisode or this web series called Mommy Triple X where she is uh, in, it's like a five minute episodes where she's with her kids and like taking her daughter to the, to get the pill for the first time. Mm. And um, her son is there talking about how he hates his mom being in porn and being mm. around porn actresses. And she really didn't like it. So she reinvents herself as this manager for mistresses of scandal, or she's the mistress of scandal because like the Tiger Woods mistresses, she takes them on as clients mm. and she helps them. She's like, works with people like Keith Davidson. She's like the manager for mm-hmm. people who have been spurned by celebrities mm. and helps them profit off of their fleeting brush with Charlie Sheen or <laughs> Tiger Woods or other people like that. So she ends up representing Stormy Daniels and working with her mm-hmm. and then gets rejected by Stormy Daniels after she hires mm-hmm. uh, Michael Avenatti to mm-hmm. get her story out to the world. Currently, well, first of all, Trumpcast guest and second, I owe listeners an apology because Michael Avenatti was not the great hope that we thought he'd be as the a kind of fixer for the good guys. Were you a fan of him? He has great shoulders, very symmetrical features, <laughs> that's all I'll say. Um, but anyway, he's now sleeping under, We read. I read yesterday, thin blankets at the yeah. MCCC, the yeah. like notoriously awful yeah, prison. He, he was not, uh, we didn't have a great relationship with him. You didn't? Oh, no, we, no, because when he came on the scene and we were reporting on Stormy Daniels, we were like um, reporting as she tried to sell her story back in 2011. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, we say this in the book, like he helped her try to rewrite the narrative mm-hmm. of like her being someone who was speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's really no like good guys in my book, to be mm-hmm, honest with mm-hmm. you. Like, um, yeah. like Stormy was really trying to, she was, and it doesn't mean she's a bad person, but she was, you know, she tried to sell the story in 2011. She tried to sell it in 2016. She couldn't yeah. sell it until after Access Hollywood and then right. Trump was on the ropes. And then she was able to to sell her story. Yeah. So, but Avenatti, when we started to report on, you know. I'm going to call this guy the beneath contempt one, even <laughs> though all your children are, uh, yeah. Well, okay. You could call him that. <laughs> In the epilogue of our book, and, you know, we, we talk about how he, the whole time he's helping Stormy Daniels and he's like making himself a household name and yeah. like being on cable every and Running night, for president. Running for president. Yeah. You know, getting involved in the Supreme Court nominations and, and you know, he's at the same time, like, allegedly, because he hasn't been convicted of anything, but, like, stealing from clients, including mm-hmm. Stormy Daniels. Like, so, I mean, how do you, if you theoretically know that you are taking money from people and that mm-hmm. belongs to them and lying to them about it, how are you then at the same time going out there and making yourself the center of attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just a bizarre way to behave, right? Mm-hmm, you think mm-hmm. you would want to really not do that and draw attention to yourself, but uh, that's what he did. Do you think there's any value in 
this demimond of the economy kind of coming out, which includes, as we said, doctors, lawyers, accountants, PR people like Hope Hicks, hangers-on, bottom feeders, some of this needed to sort of surface so that we knew something about the way the world is working. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, for a few reasons. One is because, like, these people and that we write about and, like, we try to write in the book about them, like Keith Davidson and Gina Rodriguez, like, they are, in the abstract, we look at people like porn stars and, mm-hmm. and um, but if, and Playboy models as, like, kind of, this kind of weird subculture, yeah. like, they're almost non-human. Yeah. And yet, um, the way we try to write about them, and it kind of goes back to like what we were talking about earlier about this empathy that you have when you interview people Mm -hmm. who may be the subjects of, you know, who've done something wrong or, but it also extends to like being able to portray these people as the people they are, which is real people. Like they, Keith Davidson, Gina Rodriguez, they have families, they have kids. I mean, if you watch Mommy Triple X, it's not like a salacious thing. It's really a life of her with her children um, and and seeing how they're kind of suffering from it and that she's has angst about it too, what she's yeah. doing. And like, so, I mean, one is to show people that these are just real people who are trying to make a living and they're, yeah, they're using what's mm-hmm. at their wherewithal to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's important. And the second part of it is like, that like we can look down on people like that and write them off as mm-hmm. like marginal but like the fact is like we and you know I'm not talking I'm not saying we like you and me here but like we as a country and I'm not also excluding me uh, mm-hmm. from that but you know we uh, consume celebrity news and we consume reality shows mm-hmm. we consume porn we consume gossip we create I'm glad you've left me out of this because i don't <laughs> identify with any of okay. the things you just well, did. i don't want to make any, any <laughs> i don't want to be presumptuous here so we we created that and and so i mean we bear responsibility for any way that that contributes to anything negative that may happen in the country yeah i mean i, I think that's absolutely right Michael Rothschild is a New York Times reporter. He and Joe Palazzolo have written The Fixers, the bottom feeders, crooked lawyers, gossip mongers, and porn stars who created the 45th president. Thank you so much for being here, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? It is normal to want to give feedback. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member. Today is your day to join. It's only $35 for the first year, and you support all our work in addition to getting our podcasts ad-free. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at johnnyd 23 I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Much was made about my tweet about the Kansas City Chiefs being in Kansas City. But what a lot of people don't know is at one point there were two Kansas Cities in Kansas. So they sold one to Missouri. I don't even know why the Democrats are having a caucus in Iowa. I got over 110 percent of the vote there. That means everybody plus some additional people. The great Rush Limbaugh was an incredible broadcaster, but also a fantastic improver. He could make anything up about anyone and talk about it for hours. Most people thought it was fact, but he was just making all of that up.
I just found a very old rule from our founding fathers. And if you're acquitted in an impeachment trial, you get to know who the whistleblower was and the informant and the second whistleblower and anybody else I want to find out about. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.